That's what she said is fueled by Gatorade, Gatorade's proven formula. Whatever path you take, greatness starts with G. ESPN's Debatable is a digital exclusive series across the network's Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube channels and the ESPN app. And now it's available as a podcast. The innovative series is led by a rotating team of signature voices, many of whom you're familiar with on ESPN's podcasts, including me, where we take on the most compelling topics from around the sports world. Check out Debatable now wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. I'm Ivan Mazel, and my dilemma is I just made Sarah wait 21 minutes to start this podcast because I'm disorganized. Well, regular listeners will know I am the queen of trying to find solutions for disorganization, scheduling, time management, all of that stuff. But it's later revealed in my conversation with Ivan that his tardiness was the result of a conversation far more important than ours. So no advice, Ivan. It seems like you're choosing wisely. And we still had plenty of time to talk about your book and your message and your gift to others who are grieving. So it all worked out. No stress. That's what she said. Hey, everybody. Today's episode deals with the topic of suicide. If you or someone you know is in crisis or just needs to talk, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK or text the Crisis Text Line. Just text HELLO to 741-741. Both services are free and available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Today's guest is Ivan Mazel, the vice president of editorial and senior writer at On3.com. He covered college football for nearly four decades at ESPN, Sports Illustrated, Newsday, and the Dallas Morning News before On3.com. Has been honored eight times for best story by the Football Writers Association of America, twice by the AP Sports Editors, which in 2019 named him one of the 10 best sports columnists. He's the author of a new book, I Keep Trying to Catch His Eye, about the death by apparent suicide of his son, Max, in 2015. Writes Maisel in the book, Max remains one of my children, not only for my own peace of mind, but for the greater good. The fact is, mental illness needs sunlight. Suicide makes people uncomfortable. Only recently has it begun to emerge as a topic spoken only after pulling someone aside and then in a whisper. But I will talk about it. I am not ashamed of it. We as a family need to talk about it for reasons of catharsis. We as a society need to talk about it, very simply, to save lives. Unquote. So I talked to Ivan about Max, about he and his wife and how they learned to grieve differently together, about why he wants to keep talking about Max and their loss, and about adding memories, and about writing the book. A big thanks to Ivan for speaking so honestly and being so open. I think it will help many. I often say on this podcast that I invite people on that I've been interacting with in a number of ways from afar and want to get to know more. And yet somehow Ivan Maisel worked at ESPN forever and we never interacted. I don't know that we did much together ever in part because I am rarely in the college football scene and that is where he has spent most of his time but we, uh, we, we meet now after ESPN, uh, now that he's over at on3.com, and more specifically to talk about the book that he has written and is now promoting. And before we get to the book, I would love to give people a little more of a background about you for those who aren't familiar. Um, I, I heard you say in another podcast, you grew up learning to read by reading the sporting news and, and learning math by, by looking at earned run averages. So right. where did you grow up and, and why was sports automatically just omnipresent in your life? I grew up in Mobile, Alabama and sports. I don't know why sports was omnipresent in my life. Of course, you know, it, it, if you grow up in Alabama, you are inculcated into the Alabama-Auburn rivalry at birth. So certainly I had that going for me. But, uh, you know, my dad was a high school coach, but he he got out of coaching before I was born. But he was a fan, and I just was mesmerized by it. Um, I had an older brother that collected baseball cards, so I started collecting baseball cards. So I was just sort of funneled into it, and it, and it just 
boy, it meant a lot to me, you know, and, and still does. But but back then, that's all I was about. Did you think at a young age, I want to get into something involving sports, whether at first it was being a professional athlete and then eventually coming around to the idea of maybe having to write or, or be adjacent? Well, I, yeah. I mean, of course, you. I wanted to play for the Braves. And then I uh, once I was disabused of that notion, <laughs> I wanted to be the Braves play-by-play announcer. Uh, and probably about senior year of high school, I had an English teacher who gave me confidence that I could write. And once I had that, even though I'm not sure how good I was at that. No, I know how good I was at that point. I wasn't, (laughs) but I was a kid. You know, when I went to college, I walked right into the newspaper and said, I want to write sports. And and that was that. I spent a lot of time at the school paper uh, over my four years. You were at Stanford University, so I presume that you were a hardworking kid out of Mobile, Alabama. Um, were you really invested in your studies all along? Was that a family thing of, of, of getting good grades and being focused, or is that natural for you? I I was uh, I didn't work real real hard in high school, I, I, but I was you know read everything I could get my hands on about sports and about current events. And, uh, you know, I, I used to read, we got Time Magazine growing up. I used to read that. Uh, and uh, I think, uh, you know, when I got to college, I found out how little I knew. And, <laughs> and you know, there's a saying now at Stanford that, uh, you know, a lot of kids get there and they think, how did I get in? Well, I, I spent most of my time there trying to figure out how I got in. And, and I always credited it to geographic distribution, you know, that they needed somebody from Alabama my year. So, uh, but I was, uh, yeah, I, I was playing a lot of catch up. Uh, was it culture shock for you? Uh, had you traveled a lot outside of Alabama <laughs> or did you get there? And that was one of the few times you'd been out in a totally different part of America. That, that's a great question, Sarah, because, uh, the, Overseas studies is a big thing at Stanford, and that I was so not interested in doing that because I had all I had all the culture shock. I right, right. Uh, it felt like it, a foreign country. Oh well, I I real honestly, I had to repeat everything I said for the first six weeks I was there. <laughs> uh, I bet. You know, I, my my drawl was a little more pronounced uh-huh. uh, at age uh, seventeen, eighteen than than it is now, and uh, they just did, you know, I I had to learn how to say Ivan, you know, instead of Ivan, <laughs> like I grew up. So that's kind of went from there. So you have worked all over the place in, in, in covering college football, ESPN, Sports Illustrated, Dallas Morning News. What was the first gig out of, out of college? And obviously, you, you, like you said, you took with you all the experience from writing at the paper. So um, was, it a, was it an easy get, that first job out? I, I got a job at the Atlanta Constitution. It was before the merger. So the Constitution was the morning paper. And I took $50 less a week than another offer because that offer was covering high schools. And if I went to Atlanta, I could cover college football. Uh, And they didn't want to give me anything important because I was a 21 year old dumbass. And uh, (laughs) uh, so they gave me Clemson, which is 200 miles away. A lot of Clemson fans in the Atlanta area, (laughs) but it wasn't Georgia or Georgia tech. Well, Clemson never lost that year. It was 1981. And about November 1st, they figured out, oh, my God, we got this kid on Clemson and he doesn't know what he's doing. And uh, they they brought in one of the older guys to write the game stories. And they just sort of, you know, let me do the stuff during the week and write sidebars. And I was delighted. Uh, And at the end of the year, I got a – you know, in January of 82, I got a job as a fact checker at Sports Illustrated, which in the pre-Google days was an entry-level gig. And you were responsible for the accuracy of the story you were handed. And that's what I, that's kind of how, where I learned the business. I was there five years. 
when you were in that moment of, oh gosh, I don't actually know what I'm doing and this team is doing great and this seems like a big deal, were you the kind of person that wanted to bullshit your way through it and felt, oh, I've got this. I don't know why everyone's worried. Or were you terrified? Uh, somewhere in the middle of that, I was not terrified, but I was, I knew, you know, I was not offended that they brought in somebody to, to do the, the big stuff, you know, uh, cause I, I knew I was a kid and, and learning. So, uh, I, I never had any compunction and still don't about somebody else doing something, you know, that, you know, well, I should be doing that. You know, I, I never have just don't think that way. That sounds like ego and it would be impossible for you to be in this business this long without having it. So I don't know if I believe that, but that's well, I know. I, yeah, <laughs> I, I do have an ego, but I don't, I never had it about, uh, um, I was never going to, uh, try to displace somebody else doing something. You know, if the editor assigns somebody else to do a story that I wanted to do, I never, you know, I never really argued about it or fought. I just went and did what I was assigned. Well, that's an important part of the job. We know that uh, anybody in this career has known that that's a requirement to make at any point. So, so you're doing all these gigs. Um, you um, you're in the midst of, of being one of the most respected and known voices in college football at ESPN um, with a, you know, a, a three kids and a, and a wife. And, and before things uh, um, took a turn and before your son Max died, um, what was the biggest uh, conflict in your life? What was the thing that niggled at you? That's a good question. I, you know, I, I, I think when I hit 40, I, I dealt with depression. Uh, and, you know, I got, I took antidepressants for a while and, you know, I got a therapist and pulled myself out of the ditch with her help. Um, you know, after that, it was just a, you know, a conflict of putting work in front of family, which, you know, I think a lot of people do uh, who have ambition and thinking that I had to go cover a game somewhere uh, rather than than be home, you know. And now that I'm, uh, you know, uh, hell, I'm still doing that. You know, I left, <laughs> you know, I left my family in Alabama. I left Thanksgiving Friday to go cover Ohio State, Michigan. So who am I kidding? But you know, I, I at least I, I feel like I even before Max died, I began to have a little more perspective about things. Yeah, tell me about Max. Max is our middle child, uh, our only son, and uh, yeah, we knew Sarah. He was somewhere on the spectrum. Uh, we didn't figure that out ourselves. You know what things that he did that we thought were cute were actually sort of pathological. Uh, reciting Dr. Seuss from a heart as a toddler, you know. Wow which we thought was a sign of intelligence was actually something else. And we were directed, you know, you need to get some help with him and he needs some services. And, and that was always a bit of, you know, nailing jello to the wall. You know, they, they were able to tell us it wasn't autism. They were able to tell us it wasn't Asperger's, but they really could never tell us what it was. And he had problems uh, reading social cues. He had, very little self-confidence and, and, uh, and I don't know whether, you know, I, I don't know how much of that is, is being on the spectrum and how much of that was just, he was a depressive personality, but, uh, he put up a wall, sort of a self-protective wall and, and he was shy and withdrawn and, you know, behind that wall, he was really a sweet sort of big lump, but dough, you know, he was just a sweet kid and really cared about people and loved God. We had a cat and a dog and he loved them both, but the cat was his life. Um, and he was a deeply empathetic person. Um, in, as he sort of made his way without a lot of friends as a, as a pre-adolescent and adolescent, he, picked up a camera and really was enamored with photography. And that's what he pursued in college along with video games and anime, the way most teenage boys do. And 
but he majored in photography and was doing well as we learned, you know, posthumously when we met as professors, but, uh, he just didn't, he worried about everything. He was very anxious and he worried himself into a, you know, into a corner and couldn't figure out how to get out. You describe him as a big lump of dough, but he was actually very tall and skinny, right? Oh God. Yes. Yeah. I just described his personality physically. He was uh six, five, did not weigh 140 pounds. And Oh my gosh. And as I wrote in the book, less than no ass. I mean, <laughs> uh, he, it was a struggle to find clothes to fit him, honestly. Yeah, and I bet. Meg finally would buy two pairs of pants and she would take them to the to the cleaners and have them sew extra, you know, the rest of the pant leg on to, mm -hmm. to get down to his shoes. So he was, he was at Rochester Institute of Technology. Um, he was a student there and you talk in the book about how he um, was a, a very serious rule follower and he, he did well with his schedule and he was going to do all the things that you asked of him. And occasionally you and your wife would say you wished he would break a few more rules or show a little bit more independence. And before his death, you actually maybe misread or interpreted a little bit of pulling away as, as typical youthful um, independence. And, and now you look back and think that was actually maybe a sign of something else. Sure. Yeah. I, you know, he, Max was emotionally, younger than his age and always at, at every step. And when he came home for that winter break uh, of his junior year, he turned 21 while he was home and, and he was sort of pulling away from us. He didn't engage with us or his sisters uh, a whole lot. Uh, he was spending a lot of time online with his video game pals. And, uh, and we just thought, Oh, okay. You know, this is what you usually see in high school, but he's, you know, we didn't press him to find out if he was struggling. And I think in retrospect, it's very easy to see that maybe that's where he was beginning to disengage from, from life. I, you know, I, uh, a couple of things happened right after he went back to school that really put him in a spiral, but you know, I don't know what the chicken and the egg is there, and, and guess I never will. He was a photography student, and the the photo on the cover of the book is actually his work. And I love how you describe feeling like you finished the assignment for him. Can you talk about it? Sure. Uh, so he had an assignment uh, in a class at RIT to take a self portrait to be the author flap on a book jacket of his photography. And we did not find this photo until after he was gone. And it was among his effects. And it is him looking out onto Lake Ontario, where he died, uh, from the pier of his uncle's uh, summer home. And uh, and he's the, the camera's behind him. So the, the photo is, uh, he's not looking at the camera. Max hated to have his picture taken. He, he, he loved taking pictures. He didn't like to have his picture taken and uh it, you know the the annual holiday card the annual family holiday card was always a fist fight you know <laughs> getting him to to you know to pose uh but uh so uh, you know we found this photo and and it's now on a book jacket it's not the author flap it's the cover but yeah i kind of feel like He's a published photographer, and and now we completed the assignment. Yeah, and the the title of the book is is relating to a photo you took. Yes, of uh, our three kids uh, at Sarah, our oldest college graduation, and the two girls are looking right at the camera with big smiles on their face, and Max is looking up and away. And I was sitting right here, probably three years ago, and I was just looking at the it's the wallpaper on my phone, that photo. And I was looking, cause that's the last picture we have of the three kids together. And I'm looking at the photo and I'm just saying, come on, Max, look at me, look at me. And, uh, and he's not. And so I keep trying to catch his eye. Hmm. Um, 
So you're home alone in February of 2015, um, and you you get a phone call. Can you take me through what happened? Sure. Uh, Meg was around the corner playing mahjong with some friends, and Elizabeth was here. Our youngest was a high school senior. She was in her room, which is where high school seniors <laughs> live. And uh, and the phone rang, and you know a guy. Uh, I was making soup. Um, and, uh, it was about seven 30 and Monday night and a guy identifies himself as a deputy sheriff in Monroe County, New York, which is where Rochester is. And says, we have a, he asked, is Margaret Murray there? My wife. And I said, no, this is her husband. How can I help you? And he says, well, we have found a car register registered to her in the parking lot of a park at Lake on at the shore of Lake Ontario knew right where it was. That's a mile East of my brother-in-law's summer home. You know, Max has been going there virtually his entire life. It's one of the reasons he went to RIT because he felt comfortable there. He was always up on the Lake shore taking photos. And I knew right then, Sarah, he was, he was gone. You know, it was, that was a bitter, winter and it's always colder up there than it than it is here in connecticut and it was really cold that night i I went and looked it up and it was a pretty close to zero that night in rochester a turned out a guy who lived in the neighborhood was sitting in that parking lot in his truck god knows why and watched max get out of his car, get out of his SUV and walk to the pier. And he sat there for 45 minutes and Max never came back. And that, you know, thank God, you know, the guy thought that was odd enough that he called the police. And um, 24 hours after that, you know, he was officially a missing person and they called. So it was 24 hours later when they call you. Um, and at the time, all you're told is that the, the, the car is there, but he is not there. Um, and so you and your wife and your two daughters go back and forth from Connecticut to Rochester several times. Um, what was your plan when you went there? Were you talking to people about him, students, teachers, friends, to figure out if he had gone somewhere and just not told you? Was it more a, a case of, of working with police? Well, uh w- well, Sarah, the our older daughter, was in California. Elizabeth and Meg and I drove up the next morning. Uh, and uh, look, as soon as the the sheriff, the deputy, described the situation, I knew Max was gone uh, because, as you described, he was a rule follower. And you know, the police had suggested, well, maybe he went. You know, maybe he and his buddies just went off on a you know, a walkabout Boy ride or something. Yeah. yeah. And I just knew that's not who he was. He, he, uh, he was not a partier. Uh, his friends didn't know where he was. His friends on campus didn't know where he was. Uh, Mac, uh, Meg, when we got up there, Meg and, and for a long time afterwards, she needed a roadmap of how he got to that point. And she asked a lot of questions and she talked to all of his professors and she talked to all his friends and I didn't do any, I didn't do much of that really, Sarah. I I just, it wasn't going to change anything. Uh, A few people I talked to at her suggestion, you know, we, we met with one of his professors that really kept an eye out on Max and and he was wonderful. photography professor named Frank Cost, and he was terrific. Uh, But by and large, uh, Meg stayed up in Rochester for much of the time that the law enforcement looked for him in the lake. The scuba team, the police slash sheriff's scuba team, or maybe they're just police, I don't remember. But anyway, they were, they looked for Max in the water for three weeks in 38 mm-hmm. degree water, you know, mm-hmm. which is just heroic. Uh, they couldn't find him. Uh, and we didn't recover his body for another five weeks. 
but I, you know, to answer your question, all along, Meg was up there both to be there when the police got off the boat uh, and just to talk to as many people as she could. And I, I came back to Connecticut with Elizabeth, who, and Sarah came home, and we just sort of. Uh, my memory of those first few weeks is is the three of us being under blankets on the couch watching Gilmore Girls reruns. You know, that was about all we could handle. When they did find Max's body, um, a fisherman discovered it in April. You yep. had already had a funeral and memorial services, but was there closure for you in, in knowing that indeed what you had suspected is what had happened in terms of at least how he died? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I, yeah, sure. Uh, because to not have recovered his body would, you know, the, that would just, I mean, we knew he was dead, but it, you know, to not have recovered his body would have been really hard. And um, uh, the coroner did do an autopsy and he did drown and, and um uh, I, you know, I feel awful for that poor fisherman who just happened across him. That was mid-April, and when the water got warm enough, his body rose. Uh, but uh, it did help, and and you know, we had decided to go ahead and have a memorial service because we didn't know if we'd get him back. You know, which uh, speaks to the question you're asking. We just decided, you know, we knew he was gone. So we went ahead and, and, and did the rituals. The eulogy that you read and wrote uh, is on medium and it's beautiful. Um, and, and you put it up there in part because people wanted to see and read it um, that were there. And then, and then you wanted to share it with others. Why did you want to share what you had to say about Max? Well, a couple of reasons. I mean, one, I, I didn't want Max to be defined by how he died uh, you know, to be that kid who ended his life. Uh, at, and he'll always be that, obviously, in a lot of people's minds. But I want to at least give people a sense of, of who he was. And, and I'm a writer. I mean, you know, writers write. And that was a, it was, honestly, I think that the eulogy might have been more therapeutic for me. People ask me about this book. Was it therapeutic for you? And, and no, I mean, I kind of had gotten my legs under me again before I wrote, you know, uh, but the, the eulogy, I think was, I was able to humanize Max and, and try to tell stories about him and, and give people a sense of who he was. And that was important to all four of us. We'll get right back to the interview, but I thought I would share a little bit from the eulogy we were just discussing. You could find it online on medium.com by searching Ivan Maisel and eulogy. It's called Remembering Max. Here's an excerpt. There is circumstantial evidence to indicate that Max intended to take his own life. The Rochester police tell us they will not connect the dots, but you don't have to be a pointillist to see a larger picture. We live at a time when suicide is recognized as a result of mental illness, when the stigma has been removed. Even if it weren't, we have never been ashamed of Max, and we aren't going to start now. And yet, and yet, three days before he disappeared, he paid for a year-long membership to OkCupid, the dating service. On the day he disappeared, he spent the afternoon doing photographic work, which we think was for a class. Police found no note in his car or on his computer. None of this, they tell us, is consistent with the behavior of someone intent upon hurting himself. Suicide can be an impulsive act. Or as my fellow Mobilian Jimmy Buffett sang about tattoos, a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Really, what difference does it make? Accidental or intentional, he's gone. Either path leads to the result that we don't have him anymore. You talked about your wife having sort of a different process of wanting to know every detail of what happened before and and sort of grieving differently. And I hadn't thought about this, although it's quite quite clearly an issue. Um, One of your daughters said, you know, I always hear about families where there's a tragedy that occurs and then the parents get divorced. Are you getting divorced? And um, it sort of seemed like you knew to have an answer for that right away and that how you handled each other and and the different ways of grieving was going to be the key, right? Well, we we learned that subsequently. I mean, that was just sort of a natural uh, 
uh, way that we have dealt with one another for we've been together almost 40 years. Uh, uh, we've given each other a wide berth on a lot of things, uh, in part because we were so different, you know, in a lot of ways. You know, I'm Jewish and from the deep south and Meg is Catholic and from upstate New York. And we had a we had to figure out how to to be together and with all those things that uh, uh, that made our upbringings different and that sense of sort of accommodation i guess uh was second nature to us by then and of course we came to learn that that's essential for grieving parents you know that it's not the death of the child as you alluded to that that causes divorce it's judging each other's grief you know why aren't you crying or why are you crying why don't you go to the cemetery well you go to the cemetery every day why do you go every day i mean and people are in such pain that they you know they you know they're just trying to make sense of it and put one foot in front of the other and and that's what evidently that's what happens you know and Sarah, our oldest, you know, landed in Rochester from San Francisco and, and wasn't, you know, 10 steps into the airport before she asked us that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I just went, whoa, you know, let's, let's do one disaster at a time. You know? <laughs> right. Uh, and, uh, uh, but she's pretty astute emotionally, and, and it was a good question to ask. We'll get right back to the interview, but first... What is your favorite word? Chocolate. Chocolate. Obviously not just about the word, but about the substance. Uh, Circa 1600 from Mexican Spanish chocolate from Aztec and chocolate-tl or cacao-tl. And the A-TL is water. So in the first form, the first element might be related to X-O-C-A-L-I-A. Uh, which was to make something bitter or sour. And then the Aztecs would make the chocolate with cold water. The conquistadors made it with hot water. And the European forms of the word might have been influenced by the Mayan chocol, hot. Uh, So brought to Spain by 1520, and that's where it spread to the rest of Europe. Originally a drink made by dissolving chocolate in milk or water got really popular in the 17th century. Uh, 1640s, the word came to mean as a paste or a cake made of ground roasted sweetened cacao seeds uh in the 1880s a piece of chocolate candy uh in the 1776 as a dark reddish brown color chocolate meaning a color and the adjective uh made or flavored with chocolate 1723 having the color of chocolate 1771 chocolate milk arrived in 1845 chocolate chip in 1940 a great word a great substance speaking of great words you gonna learn today The word of the week is somewhat related to chocolate, actually, at least in my house. Yule hole. Now, don't go making your own assumptions because I said chocolate and yule hole. Get your minds out of the gutter. Yule hole, per the Scottish National Dictionary, is an old Scots dialect word for the loosest notch on your belt, reserved for Christmas feasting, and for belly cheer, which is another obscure forgotten word, dating from the 1500s and meaning fine food or gluttonous eating. Belly cheer. Love that. But back to your Yule hole in a sentence. No need for a Yule hole when you're wearing stretchy pants, said the smartest gal at the table, looking about at her overstuffed, hard pants-clad family who had enjoyed too much belly cheer. Yule hole. So good. I'm going to bring all these words back. Apricity, Yule hole, titty nope. It is a gift to you and to myself every week, this segment. Now let's get back to the interview. You talk about grief in the book um, as as just being love. And there's a clip that's been going around lately from Colbert Show. And it's uh, Andrew Garfield talking about the loss of his mother lately and described grief as the unexpressed love and said, no matter how many times we told her and we told her every day, as soon as your time runs out, whether they're 95 or younger than that, um, it's never enough time to keep telling someone how much you love them. And it seems like you very much share that idea of repurposing grief as not just painful, but 
as a as a true act of of how much you cared as a as a gift uh, to tell you how much that person meant. Yes, and you know I didn't come to that realization as quickly as Andrew Garfield did. I, you know that was just living with that pain for weeks and just thinking about it and trying to make sense of it and and coming to the understanding, Sarah, that the loss was permanent. Uh, that I was this was not something you know Meg would say we don't do prepositions you know this is not something you get on get over or, or get through and um, I think uh, once I sort of you know understood I just had to accommodate it I had to get used to carrying it then I just that sort of made me quit fighting it and then I started to think about it and why am I in such pain? Well, that's because you loved him a lot. And, you know, as a journalist, you start taking ideas and sort of pare them down to their essence. And, you know, grief, the, the amount of grief to me was equal to the amount of love. So grief is just a form of love. It's a very painful form of love. But once I again, once I kind of got that in my head that grief is love, it made it easier to accommodate. You knew that the family was going to be looking at you and following your lead and figuring out how you were responding, both direct family and then anybody after um, you came to the conclusion that that he was lost, that, that you'd have to tell uh, the news to. And you talk about how you just went for it. You were full-fledgedly, you put it all out there. You didn't want to hide anything or limit who knew what about your grieving process or anything else. Um, and that seems to be uh, surprising based on, you know, you, you also talk about growing up in Alabama and you were supposed to be stoic and unfeeling and, and your toughness was decided in how you, um, how you kept it together instead of opened up or, or expe- expressed vulnerability. Was that yep. an immediate response for you to say, I'm going to share it all and I'm going to defy those stereotypes? Or did you have to work your way through that? Yeah, that was pretty, that was pretty early on. That was that first week. And it was really uh, not, I mean, I understood that mental illness needs to be discussed publicly. And, uh, but the, I think the two main motivations was that one, I didn't want to, people to interpret our uh, silence as shame, that we were ashamed of Max because we weren't ashamed of Max. We thought he was a great kid. And the other thing was purely out of self-preservation is, you know, especially those first few days, it's all you can do to get out of bed. You know, it's all you can do to put one foot in front of the other and now I was going to have to keep up with who knew what, you know, like who were we going to tell and how much were we going to tell them, you know, where were we going to draw that line? You know, mm-hmm. all of a sudden I'm, you know, deciding who gets classified information and who doesn't, you know, and that just seemed like a lot of work to me, you know, and what, yeah. again, what difference did it make? You know, whether it was, you know, and, and at that moment we didn't know that it was suicide, but Either way, he was gone, and I just thought, "Who cares?" You know, you know. I, I, let's just put it all out there, and if somebody is going to see that as some sign of of uh, uh, you know something bad about Max, that I wasn't going to take that on. That, that was just on them. Um, you talk about learning how to deal with people who grieve, and I am very much like you pre-max, which is put it at an arm's length, Heisman it until you ever eventually have to deal with it, which thus far I have not in very serious ways. And I've even had people on the podcast to sort of talk to me about it to to try to cut through that that wall that we put up, especially in America, where we're so afraid to talk about death and, and grief. And I thought it was really powerful that you said um, you do want people's sympathy, 
and you do want to talk about it. Cause I so often think, Oh, I don't want to, what if they're really happy right now? And somehow it's not on their mind. I don't want to bring it up. Cause what if I'm spoiling that one moment that they've got where they're not, you know, down about it. But you said that it's actually something that was really meaningful to you is getting people to be willing to talk about Max. Sure. And, and, you know, throughout all of this, Sarah, I, I think I should probably point out, you know, everybody grieves differently and everybody does it differently. And this is just what worked for me, but uh, we want to talk about Max. You know, it, it keeps him present as best as we can. And it's been almost seven years by now. But so, of course, time passes. But th- that's just the point. When somebody dies, your interactions with them end and you have a finite number of of in, of memories. Mm. So if somebody can come to me and bring me a memory that I don't have, that's a gift. And, you know, and, and just to talk about him is a gift, is a way to keep him present. So I'm, I was always, uh, you know, and uh, I mean, I, people would come up to me and be sort of hesitant about bringing him up or say, I didn't know how to bring him up. And I didn't want to be a complete jerk about it, but I would just smile. And so they knew I was being nice and say, well, you know, if you hadn't have brought him up, I wouldn't have been thinking about him. You know, but, I mean, <laughs> of course, it's all you, especially those first few weeks and months, that's all you think about. So he's always present, you know, especially with somebody who, who dies, you know, tragically. Uh, so I, 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 yeah, I look, you know, recently when after the book came out his fourth grade teacher told me a great story about him that i had never heard before so i I was thrilled to hear it that is such a wonderful way of putting it i've never thought about that but it is true you get to add to this finite amount of things that you loved about that person remember about them and you get to add all these other things that other people shared with him and knew about him which is which is amazing and and particularly you talk about you know, mental illness needing sunlight, and um, for your for yourselves and as a family, you didn't want it to feel like you were were hiding or that you were ashamed. But also that now you're a part of this group of people who understand better than most the toll it can take and and how awful it is to lose someone to suicide. Um, it's an awful club to be a part of. But I would imagine in the years since, because you're a public figure and the story has become public, um, people come to you to talk about it. Yes. Yes. In fact, that's. You know, that's one reason I was late. I was meeting with a friend of mine whose whose brother ended his life about eighteen months ago. Well, not even that, fourteen months ago. And uh, um, people do reach out to me, uh, and I emphasize very strongly that I am not an expert on mental health. I'm an expert in one case of mental health. It didn't go very well, uh, but you know, we're all part of that, you know, club that, uh, especially as parents that no one wants to join. And, and there is, uh, there is comfort in reaching out to one another and, in, in understanding that they understand, you know, I had several fathers reach out to me in the days and weeks after Max died, the guys in our business, guys in athletics uh, that I didn't know well uh, or at all. And so I have tried to pay that forward as best I can. You are now, like you said, almost seven years removed. And and you said it took you a number of years to decide that you had your legs under you to write the book. And then the pandemic offered up some time to do it (laughs) with, with that, you know, perspective and that time to look back at the person that you were in the days and months and even years just after, do you have advice for people who are in the midst of that immediacy of that, of that grief that feels like it won't ever subside? Well, it's not really anything that, is a magic wand, but, you know, time is, is an effective healer. Uh, you learn that when the, the pain will stop being constant and that it will begin to ebb and flow. And once you learn that, then when it does flow, you understand that, it, that it's, you, it's just a bad moment, a bad day and that you will, uh, you will 
just to lean into it and and it will recede and that that's a gift mm-hmm. you know and just uh we had a neighbor who lost her husband and she said to me and it it sounds like it's from a greeting card but you know you're standing at the shore and sometimes you know grief sometimes washes over your ankles and sometimes washes over your head but either way it recedes mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. that that i took great comfort from that thought well i imagine a lot of people will take great comfort from the book in in talking to kate fagan about her book that deals with someone who died by suicide um in talking to mental health experts there is so much of a need for conversation around it both for those people struggling with it and those people around them who suffer either as they see the hurt it causes people or um in, in the case of Max and others, people that they lose to it. And it's great that we're having these conversations and it's great that people like you are willing to share your experiences as hard as it may be. Um, and to bring, to bring Max to life in the words of the book and, and the ways that people now will know him and remember him. Um, and hopefully people will, will read it and bring those stories to you. Cause I just love that idea of, of people who knew Max now coming to you with, with new stuff to add to the memory file. Um, thanks so much for coming on. It was really great to talk to you. Sarah, thanks very much for having me on. I liked this conversation. That's what she said. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. (laughs) Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition is part of ESPN Nation, brought to you by Dr. Pepper. College football is back, and so are the fans. Return to glory with Fansville by Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. No Spanish Inquisition today. But I will tell you one of the answers to my Spanish Inquisition questions to set up this next segment of the podcast. Stephen Colbert is the famous person that I would most like to be my best friend. On some days it changes. The Tina Fey's, the Mindy Kaling's, the Amy Poehler's. The poll is great. But Stephen Colbert is the one I always come back to. And some of what I'm about to say probably gives you a hint as to why. So Colbert is part of a larger couple thoughts on grief that I wanted to share because I love talking to Ivan and I loved hearing his perspective, especially the lovely thought about adding memories to his finite collection that with each new story someone shares about his son, he gets to keep adding new memories despite the fact that he's gone. And obviously grief is very personal. It will be different for everyone, but I feel like it's nice to connect with others who share your experiences or to hear the perspective of others who can offer a sort of map or a guide for when you eventually come face to face with that big loss. Um, a couple years ago, my podcast with my friend Charzad and her mother is a great one to listen to. Her perspective on facing terminal illness was incredible. Her thoughts on energy and regret and choices and facing death head on are incredible. Charzad's thoughts on knowing that she would lose her mother and how they're dealing with that you know, in life as well as uh, when it will come for them in death. Um, It's worth listening to. Also, there's uh, the short exchange between Stephen Colbert and Andrew Garfield I mentioned with Ivan is worth a watch. Uh, Grief is just the unexpressed love we feel for a person is so beautiful. Uh, No matter how much we tell them we love them, eventually they're gone. So you can never get to say it enough. Uh, It's a short clip you can find on YouTube. And if you Google it, um, one of the other strongest reactions I've had to someone talking about grief is Colbert again. Uh, He was the youngest of 11 kids. And at the age of 10, his dad and his two closest brothers died in a plane crash. And I have reread many times the GQ profile of him from 2015 that previewed the move he was making from the Colbert Report to The Late Show and what personality we'd finally get to see when he left that sort of blowhard satirical character behind. Um, Read the story. Joel Lovell is the author. The late, great Stephen Colbert is the headline. Here's just a bit of it, but it's so much better when you read it in context. But to tease you, to inspire you to take the time to go read it, I'll give you a little bit. Quote, It was a very healthy reciprocal acceptance of suffering, he said, he being Colbert, which does not mean being defeated by suffering. Acceptance is not defeat. Acceptance is just awareness. He smiled in anticipation of the callback. You got to learn to love the bomb, he said. Boy, did I have a bomb when I was 10. That was quite an explosion. And I learned to love it. So that's why. Maybe. I don't know. That might be why you don't see me as someone angry or working out my demons on stage. It's that I love the thing that I most wish had not happened. Unquote. I love the thing 
that I most wish had not happened. I asked him if he could help me understand that better, and he described a letter from Tolkien in response to a priest who had questioned whether Tolkien's mythos was sufficiently doctrinaire, since it treated death not as a punishment for the sin of the fall, but as a gift. Quote, Tolkien says in a letter back, what punishments of God are not gifts, unquote. Colbert knocked his knuckles on the table. What punishments of God are not gifts, he said again. His eyes were filled with tears. So it would be ungrateful not to take everything with gratitude. It doesn't mean you want it. I can hold both of those ideas in my head, unquote. He was 35, he said, before he could really feel the truth of that. He was walking down the street and, quote, it stopped me dead. I went, oh, I'm grateful. Oh, I feel terrible. I feel so guilty to be grateful, but I knew it was true. It's not the same thing as wanting it to have happened, he said, but you can't change everything about the world. You certainly can't change things that have already happened. Now, I'm not religious, and much of Colbert's thinking on gratitude and grief in that story and elsewhere center on God, but I can still make his thoughts apply to my life. And he again discusses the ideas of that GQ story in a conversation with Anderson Cooper, who also lost his dad at age 10 and lost a brother over 30 years ago. And the conversation that the two of them have about grief is incredible. Um, If you Google their names, it will come up. Watch it. Uh, I personally have struggled with death and the idea of it. My husband says it's part of life. I say, no, it's the end of life. He's right, of course, uh, when it comes to the death of others, at least, because that, of course, is a part of our lives. And I've been lucky enough to not lose anyone very close to me. My grandparents uh, either passed away before I was born or when I was young. My closest friends and family remain healthy. And it is a struggle to face it honestly for me because I have a tremendous fear that I won't be able to handle it, um, having not gone through it before, having not learned how to deal with it. And so having conversations with people like Sharzada and her mother or Ivan or listening to Colbert and Anderson Cooper, um, these things all help me. And I hope they help you too. I hope this episode helped you. That's what she said. Oh yeah. One more thing. So this is a place for rants and raves and everything in between. Things to watch, see, listen to, a great story, something I'm pissed about, uh, whatever I think you should check out, whatever's on my mind really. And I already gave them to you. Read the GQ story, watch the interview, listen to my podcast, read Ivan's book. And also remember that while the holidays may be happy for so many, people dealing with loss may struggle. And so accept that and support them and bring them light and love when they need it. Bring them a willingness to share their pain when they need it. Take their mind off of it when they want it. Uh, Just be good to each other. And if you get through all the heavy stuff and you need a smile, then Google Stephen Colbert telling the story of how he met his wife and how he knew she was the one. I promise it will make you smile. You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain if you've got guest suggestions or dilemmas or questions. And you should definitely go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe or follow. That's what she said with Sarah Spain. Rate it five stars, please. Scroll down. Give it a review. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. 